Hey, like Don said uh, to start out the service this morning, one of the values that we have as a church is the opportunity we have to pray with and for one another. And so I want to invite you, if you would, you can jump on our church app or just on the website and you can submit uh, what's called an online connect card. What that really does, the most important part of that for us is those prayer requests that you submit and turn in. And you can do that on the website or the app. And each Saturday, if you're not aware of this, uh, our elders will gather together Saturday mornings and we just pray over the prayer requests that you submit. And so uh, you can know that when you submit a prayer request here at New Hope every week, you're going to have people praying over it. So I want to invite you to do that. Now, while you're doing that, we'll go ahead and get started here. I want to start out um, telling you about uh, the story of one of my favorite preachers. Uh, this is a guy that had, has had a tremendous impact on my life uh, with preaching. Also happened to be a professor at the seminary that I went to in grad school. And uh, I didn't get to take a class with him, but I did get to sit under some of his preaching, and he's had a really big impact on me. His name is Chuck Sackett. And uh, Chuck is actually familiar with New Hope. In the 90s, uh, the church here brought him in multiple times to preach. Uh, and again, uh, had a big impact here at the church as well. Well, Chuck grew up in Idaho, a small town uh, in Idaho, and um, w- wrote about this and has spoken about it multiple times, but he did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, he, he talks about how his mom and dad owned the small town, the bar, and uh, did not live Christian lives. In fact, his only exposure to Christians in the church growing up was when he wanted to win a certain award. Uh, he had this award that he really wanted to win, and the only way to win it was to come to the church and participate for a couple weeks so that you could be in the drawing to win this award. And so he went, but only so he could win this award. Well, there was this couple that lived in his town, and they lived a few doors down from him, and they would constantly come out and sit on their porch, this older couple. And uh, Chuck would have to walk by their house every day. Uh, whether he was going to school or going to the store, going to visit friends or going to visit his mom and dad at the bar that they owned. And every time he would pass by this elderly couple's home, they're sitting on their front porch, they would get his attention. Hey, Chuck, Chuck. And when they got his attention, they would then uh, say, hey, how are you doing? Like, really, how's life? And he would always respond. Their names were the Rainers. And he would always say, Mrs. Rainer, Mrs. Rainer, I'm doing good. Thank you. And he said, even all the way back then, he remembered vividly the impact that their concern for him had on his life. It meant a lot to him. Well, eventually they move away, and he loses touch with them, and he doesn't see them for a little over 12 years before he makes contact with this couple again. And in that span of time, he'd become a Christian, which is surprising in this small, uh, easy-to-overlook town in Idaho, where it would have been easy for him not to become a Christian. There's barely even a church in the town, but God had different plans. He becomes a Christian ends up going off to college, to seminary, becomes a professor, ultimately preaching and teaching, and now preaches at a larger church in Quincy, Illinois. But after becoming a Christian and going to school, it was 12 years later that he shows up uh, in, at a speaking engagement in Oregon, all the way out on the West Coast, and he somehow learns that the Rainers, this couple that had had an influence on him in this small town in Idaho, were in a nursing home in the town that he was speaking. So he decided, I'm going to go and visit them. That's exactly what he does. He takes some time. He goes to nursing home. He sits down with them, and they reminisce, and they're sharing stories, and they're laughing, and they're talking about what it was like to grow up in that small town and the impact that it had on all of them, and they're laughing, having a good time. Well, their time comes to an end, and he decides uh, he's got to go and and move on. He stands up, and he writes that when he stood up, Mr. Rainer grabbed his arm. He said, Chuck, I want you to know something. Every single day, me and Mrs. Rainer have prayed for you by name. Not a day has gone by where we didn't lift your specific name up to God's throne room and ask him to do something powerful in your life. 
my, oh my, look at how he answered our prayer. Nothing fancy, nothing big, nothing dramatic. Just the quiet, consistent prayers of an elderly couple who took a particular interest in one promising young man. And look at the difference that those prayers have made. And his life has had an impact on mine in teaching and preaching. Some of my closest friends sat under his preaching for years. Thousands of people come to know Christ sitting under his preaching because of the faithful prayers of a couple. I've read through the book of Acts multiple times in my walk with Christ. And uh, multiple times read through it and taught through it and preached. And yet this particular time as we've journeyed through it here in 2020, something that has stuck out to me more than any other time that I've read through the book of Acts is the simple and yet profound and powerful impact that consistent faithful relationships have in God's economy. It's pretty unbelievable. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life where you've had somebody take an interest in you, some special interest in you, and they've invested in you, and maybe you can't even really understand why, but man, they just poured into you, and they just spent time caring for you and loving you, and that's that impact that that had on your life is transformative. It changes things. I don't know if this will connect, but let me, let me try to make a connection here. Uh, I picture relationships like this kind of like uh, the refrigerator in your home, okay? And, and stick with me. Most refrigerators, they start out clean, right? Uh, we moved into a home recently, and the refrigerator was clear, And we're months into this now, and all of a sudden it's not so clear anymore. There's uh, artwork that hangs up on it. There's schedules that hang up on it and pictures and wedding invitations and little notes and reminders. And to anybody who would walk in your home, it's chaos. Like, what is this? It's like a scene out of the movie A Beautiful Mind. It's just gibberish. It's like a foreign language, your refrigerator. And some people might even say that's sloppy and unnecessary. Clean your fridge. Uh, And yet to anyone who lives in the home... The cover, the, the doors of those refrigerator, of that refrigerator, mean everything. Every note, every reminder, every picture is a connection to a person or an event. Uh, all the pictures you hang up there, they're reminders of people to pray for or memories to reminisce about and discuss or, or things to laugh about and talk about. They mean something significant. Well, this is what the Bible's chock full of, especially in the book of Acts. It's like you're constantly looking at God's refrigerator door. And throughout the book of Acts, you get to pull off another picture and you get to sit and think about what the impact of this person or this this movement had on God's kingdom. And that's what we see in the chapter that we're going to study today. We're going to meet a couple. We're going to take a picture right off of God's refrigerator door and we're going to meet this couple that has a profound impact on this young preacher. And the impact that they have on his life sends him on a different trajectory that leads to other people being impacted. Nothing big, nothing fancy, not dramatic, just the consistent, faithful love of one couple onto another. It's In a sense, it's like a power couple. We like to talk about power couples in our culture today. Two people that come together and they have a tremendous impact on culture and they change things. And I don't think there's ever been a power couple quite like the one we're going to study today. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, well, while you're turning there, let me fill you in a little bit on what's going on in the book of Acts. As Acts chapter 18 opens up, we see the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys comes to this town of Corinth. He meets this couple that we're going to talk about. They begin to work together, and a church is birthed. A church is planted right there in the town of Corinth. Well, Paul spends some time investing in his people. 
a, a lot of time investing in these people. And surprise, surprise, I know this will come as a complete surprise to you. There's trouble when Paul planted the church. Some people didn't like it. And so they want to create opposition. The Apostle Paul ultimately ends up having to leave, and we kind of pick up where he's going to leave. You get a little bit of the context in verse 23. Chapter 18, verse 23 uh, says this. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, Luke is pretty short in his description, but I want you to know this. Chapter 18, verse 23 covers about 1,500 miles of travel. Not like getting in your car and driving to Florida, though that's a great trip. Uh, but we're getting closer to winter. Anyone who comes to church here knows I got to start it. It's starting early this year, guys. Everybody wants to go to Florida. It's the promised land. Um, but this 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles of travel. Paul's worn out. He's tired. And the word that Luke uses there in verse 23 when he says traveled around strengthening the churches, this particular word shows up four times in your New Testament, all four times in the book of Acts, and all four times talking about when the Apostle Paul was traveling to these different churches. Here's what it means, essentially. It means that Paul didn't just plant churches. He invested in them. He didn't just plant churches to start programs and presentations for a bunch of people to watch. He went and invested in the people. Again, it's another principle in the text that tells us that God's uh, economy, God's kingdom is about relationships. It's about connecting with people. And so Paul sets out. Well, now Luke's going to give us a really, he's going to come back to Ephesus. So they were in Corinth. Now they're in Ephesus. We're going to come back to Ephesus and we're going to learn what took place after the apostle Paul moved on to go strengthen these churches. We're going to pick up in verse 24. Here's what Luke writes. Meanwhile, so while Paul takes off and goes this direction, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He, had learned, he, had, he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard of him, they invited him to their home to explain to him the way of God more adequately. Three characters that we meet here. You meet Priscilla and Aquila, the couple that we've been talking about, and you meet a young preacher named Apollos. And Luke tells us a little bit about an encounter that they had with one another. But what do we know about Priscilla and Aquila? Well, there's six different times in your Bible where you're going to read about this couple. Six different times that they show up on the scene. And so you pull their picture off of God's refrigerator to learn a little bit of their story. And you learn that Aquila, when we first meet him, is living uh, in, in a region of what would modern day be modern day Russia. And from there, that's where he grew up. And he makes his way ultimately to the city of Rome. When he gets to Rome, he meets this beautiful young lady, Aquila. They end up getting married and start to plant roots there, start to uh, live their life together there in Rome. But these riots break out in Rome, causing them to have to leave. And so when they leave Rome, they end up uh, in a small part of Greece in a town called Corinth. They show up in Corinth, and they meet this traveling missionary named Paul. They partner with him. A church gets birthed there. But then uh, they're forced to leave Corinth. They end up in Ephesus. Well, they plant themselves in Ephesus, and they begin to invest in the church in Ephesus when riots that we'll talk about next week in Acts 19, they break out in Ephesus. Now they're forced to leave again, and they, they leave Ephesus again. Ultimately, they end up in Rome, and then back in Ephesus. Here's the point. This couple, dedicated to God's mission and having an impact for God in the world around them, could never really settle in and plant roots constantly had curveballs thrown their way and they had to move from one place to the next and they think they're going to be able to settle in and things are going to go good only to have to move again and only have to move again and 
But here's what you consistently see in their life over and over and over again. No matter where they end up, they just plant themselves where they're going to be. They open their doors and they love people. Okay, we open our doors. We're going to love people. Oh, we have to move again. Well, then they have to move again and they're going to love people. And they invest in the apostle Paul. Paul has to leave. They're going to stay. And while they're there, they're going to love people. And if we have to move again, wherever we're at, we're just going to love people. There's just this incredible, simple faithfulness to the way that they live their life and the impact that they have on so many other people around them. Well, after Paul leaves, they go and they're sitting there listening as this young preacher comes to town named Apollos. And what do we know about Apollos? Well, we know that he's a Jewish man from the town of Alexandria. Very similar to Paul being from Tarsus. These are pretty well-known towns where a lot of things happen, cities, and a lot of education. And so when the text tells us that Apollos was a learned man. It meant he was very intelligent. He grew up in a place where he had a good education. He was exposed to good teaching. He soaked it all in. He said that somewhere along the way, he became a Christian. And then he was discipled in the way of the Lord. And so now he becomes a Christian with all the intelligence that he had. He's applying it to living for Jesus. And he gets passionate. Now, the text also tells us that he, was a, he spoke with great fervor. What that means is that he could captivate an audience. When he got up in front of people, people wanted to listen to him. He had energy. He was excited. Man, he, he got so passionate about what he was talking about that people were drawn to him. So now you take his intelligence, his love for the Lord, and his speaking ability, and this guy was pretty dynamic. And so he travels around as an evangelist. Well, he comes to Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila are there. And they sit under his teaching, and they're kind of blown away. Like, this guy's impressive. I think they're kind of blown away for a couple of different reasons. I think they were excited to meet someone that reminded him so much of Paul. I mean, they're both very learned people. David mentioned last week just how intelligent Paul was. I mean, he was just a very smart and intelligent person. They're both from bigger cities. They both love the Lord. They both use the Old Testament so uh, brilliantly to argue for Jesus being the Messiah. They both had really big personalities. When they walked into a room, you knew that they were there and they attracted people to them. I mean, I think Apollos reminded them of the picture on their fridge of Paul. I think when they see this guy and they hear him and they're exposed to him, they're thinking, man, this guy has so much promise. So much promise. But as they listen to him, there's something off. So as they were listening to him, the text tells us they're listening. Man, this guy's good. This is good. He's got so much promise. But he only knew the baptism of John. So they knew, hey, we, we see a lot of promise in this guy, but there's something we're going to have to correct. We're going to have to correct his teaching. And so when they hear this, what do they end up doing? What is it that they end up saying to him? They, they get on social media and they just blast it. They're just like, you know what, man, this guy, Paulus is gifted, but watch out for his teaching. It's not right. It's not incomplete, right? Hashtag we'll teach him, right? The correction crew is coming. We're going we're gonna to correct everybody. No, they don't do that. They stand up in front of everybody and they just, hey, oh, 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 that was wrong. That was wrong. And Apollos, you might be gifted. You might think you got it all together, but that wasn't good teaching. And they correct him in front of everybody, shaming him. They teach him a lesson because what's most important is that you're right and that the truth is preserved and we're God's warriors to make sure it's preserved. That's not what they do either. They don't shame him. They don't grab him and pull him into a corner and say, hey, oh, before we go home, that was great. Good job up there. They don't catch him as soon as the sermon's over. And obliterate them to make themselves feel good about being right. It's not what they do either. Instead, they extend a simple invite to them. Hey, would you come over to our house for dinner this week? You got a lot of giftedness. Man, we would love to have a meal with you. Come over for dinner. This is fascinating. I think for them, they probably thought back to the conversations that they had in Corinth with the Apostle Paul as Paul talked about the influence that Barnabas had on his life. 
hey, when I became a Christian, I just didn't have things figured out. And I, man, but Barnabas, he encouraged me, he invested in me, he spent time with me. And I think they're probably even thinking about that when they see Apollos and they say to themselves, yeah, this guy's got so much promise and potential, let's have him over dinner. Nothing big, nothing fancy, nothing dramatic, just a faithful meal and communication and care for this young preacher. So they invite him into their home, and that's what they do. They sit there, and they spend time with him, and they say, hey, you're so good at what you're doing, and you have all this giftedness. You remind us of, of the Apostle Paul. Man, it's just incredible. In fact, Paul will write later on about the influence Apollos had. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he writes to the church at Corinth, who had really divided over Paul and Apollos, and they've taken sides. But Paul writes to them and says, no, that's not how it works. You see, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God's the one that grew it. I mean, Paul had a deep appreciation for Apollos, too. They were so similar, and they worked together. And so Priscilla and Aquila have them together. They have them around the table, and they just have this conversation with them to try to correct him. And what he was lacking was his understanding of baptism. He said they understood John's baptism. Well, when you study your New Testament, you know that when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was baptizing people. Uh, and the word used there is immersing. So they would come to the Jordan River. They would be immersed underwater for a declaration of repenting of their sin. But the text says that he didn't understand Christian baptism. And what we learn in the New Testament, what they were talking to him around that table that day was, when somebody wants to become a Christian, they want to give their lives to Christ, they have to understand who Jesus is. They have to believe Jesus is who Jesus said that he was. And they repent of their sins. And they confess Jesus is Lord. And then, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, they're baptized. And they're, they're immersed under the water, brought back up from the water. And in that moment, their sins are forgiven, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, Apollos hadn't communicated that in his teaching. And so they sit him around the table and they say, hey, like, you're so good and you have it, you're, you're doing so well, but, but baptism's much more than this now. Let us explain to you what Christian baptism is. And they do it. The text tells us that they didn't do it in such a way that drained him. They didn't do it in a way that made sure that he knew that they were right and he was wrong. They weren't forceful. They weren't rude. They weren't pretentious. They weren't insulting to him. They simply sat down and said, you have so much promise, but let us walk you through some scripture. This very intelligent preacher who understood the scriptures and they walk him through the teaching of Jesus. You ever had someone invest in you like that? I didn't become a Christian until my senior year of high school. And I had really no exposure to the church prior to that. And so in the 18 years uh, that I had lived before encountering the gospel, I had developed patterns in my life that weren't healthy, that weren't in line with the gospel. I had developed habits that weren't, weren't wise. In particular, I had an anger problem, and I had a really foul mouth. And so as I became a Christian, one of the things that I had to learn to do was to really get rid of that. And I re really struggled with it for a long time. I struggled with it because I developed such like, deep patterns in my life that were hard to undo. And there was this couple, this family, at the church there in, in South Florida where I was from. And they invited me into their home. They really invited me into their family and into their life. They were modern-day Priscilla and Aquilas to me. They invested in me when they easily could have said, no, not in our house. See, they were Christians and had been their whole married life, and they'd raised their children in the church. And so to have a kid like me come around was a risk. But their house, I'd say this all the time, their front door should have just been a revolving door. Shouldn't have even had really a front door to their house because it was just always, like no matter what, you just come in. Everybody comes in, and they come, and they go. And my time in that home changed my life forever. 
This couple invested me. I ended up baptizing my mom before she passed away in their swimming pool. That house and that family changed my life. They were there at my wedding. They traveled up here to New Hope for my wedding. They were there. They were there when my mom died and they walked me with me through the funeral. They made the trip when each of my kids were born. Corrected me when I needed to be corrected. They just consistently refused to quit on me. They were my Priscilla and Aquilas. They changed my life forever. That's what's taking place here. I mean, look at the response that comes from that dinner table. Just picture this. They sit around this dinner table, and what comes after tells you so much about what took place at the table. Look at verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted with his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Look at how their approach fueled him, did not deplete him. He easily could have walked out of their house after that dinner, after that meal, and felt like he shouldn't keep going because he didn't have it together. He wasn't ready. He didn't have what it took. But instead, the time around their table put gas in his tank and fueled him to want to go all the more passionately to represent Jesus. What happens when we encounter people like that? What happens when people leave our home? What happens when people sit around our table and they walk out of our house? Are they refreshed, equipped, and encouraged to keep going? Or do we make it all about us and showing off what we have and what we've accomplished and who we've become? Do we make it all about us and correcting what was wrong so that people understand just how intelligent and smart and right we are? See, for Priscilla and Aquila, it was always about someone else. It was always about others. And so I want to draw three things from this, three simple lessons that we can draw as we want to live out as modern-day Priscilla and Aquila's in the world today. The first thing you learn when you study their life, and really anyone who's lived similar to them, is this. Keep it simple. All you got to do is open your door. That's it. Every time you read about Priscilla and Aquila in your Bible, every time that they're mentioned, it's always mentioned what was going on in their home. They had a revolving front door. People constantly coming in, being equipped and refreshed, and constantly going out. It was the place that you went. It was the spring of life, if you will. The household of Priscilla and Aquila was a spring of life. It's the place you went to get charged up to then be sent back out. All the time. I mean, think about Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. They get to town in Corinth, and who do they meet? They meet this young missionary who's kind of uh, doesn't have a lot of money, and he hasn't really been to town before. And what do they say? They come join us in our family business. We build tents. It's like, all right, yeah. So he joins and he builds tents with them and they build a relationship with him. And this frees him up while he stays in their home and works with their family business to go into the synagogue and reason with people. And all of a sudden, this church in Corinth is birthed. And I think it's fair to say that Priscilla and Aquila are just as responsible for the church in Corinth as Paul was. But nothing big, nothing fancy, nothing dramatic, just faithful every day, representing Jesus, allowing their home to be a home base for what God was doing all around them. I think we overthink impact too often. We live in an Instagram culture where any impact we have has to come with a beautiful picture. And sure, transformed lives happen on mountaintop experiences. They do, absolutely. But more often than not, the pictures on your refrigerator represent the conversations you've had around your table. They represent the lives and the memories that you've had in the everyday stuff of life, not 
the big mountaintop experiences. That was Priscilla and Aquila. Keep it simple. Don't overthink it. Just open your door. And the second thing is this. You keep it simple, but we also have to keep it real and be intentional. I think it's important to note that Priscilla and Aquila listened before they said anything. They heard this. They recognized something's off. We need to correct something. But they didn't jump on it immediately. They said, hey, let's not pull them over to the side and talk. Let's go ahead and, and set up a time to meet with him. Let's have this, this space where we can collect our thoughts and we can think about what we want to say to him. The Bible is chocked full of teaching that says wisdom, true wisdom, comes with few words. You want to live a life of wisdom, you don't talk a lot. You choose your words wisely and you choose few of them. This is what happens. The first verse I ever memorized, the youth minister who discipled me when I became a Christian there my senior year, he said, the first verse you need to memorize is not John 3.16, it's James 1.19. James 1.19 says this, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now he said, you need that one more than you need anything else, Rob. You need to watch your mouth and you need to control your temper. So you need to learn how to be quick to listen. Listen first. And it's fascinating to me how that verse plays out. I teach this in my worldview class every year. When you start with listening, and you really try to listen. You seek to understand before being understood. When you really listen, and then you really choose your words wisely, you don't really ever get angry. Works in marriage, works in friendship, works in the workplace. When I listen first, and I really think about what I'm going to say before I say it, I find myself not getting angry. But when we reverse that and we go into a situation with our emotions charged up and we talk before we listen, things don't end well. See, Priscilla and Aquila listened. But don't mistake this. Being gentle is not the same as being passive. Just because they were gentle and kind does not mean they ignored the problem. They invited him into their home. They were kind and gentle and they were direct. This is what you taught about baptism, but this is what truth is about baptism. You have so much promise. You add this to it. You make a complete picture of your teaching. And we send you out of here. You're going to have a dynamic impact for God's kingdom. And that's exactly what happens. Just because they were gentle does not mean they were passive. They're not the same thing. And we confuse them in our culture. Last thing is this. Keep it simple. Keep it real. And keep it consistent. Everywhere that Priscilla and Aquila went, no matter where they went, there was a very simple formula. Settle in. Open the door. Love people. Got to move? Okay, settle in, open the door, love people. Got to move again? Okay, settle in, open the door, love people. And God used that to impact so many different lives because of their consistency. This is where it gets weird for me because I've been at New Hope for multiple years, so a lot of my experiences come from my interaction with this church family. So like my illustrations come from my experiences with many people here at the church, many of whom don't want their name being used. And so uh, this illustration will involve a nameless person. But back in 2009, I'd been here for about a year. And uh, I, my wife was pregnant with our second child. We have four children, and she was pregnant with our daughter at the time. And I got scared. I got scared every time my wife got pregnant. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Round one. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what, round two, round three, round four. And I'm like, I still don't know what I'm doing. What are we doing? Ah. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to seek advice. And so I went to someone who I had watched parent their children in a way that I really respected the way that this man conducted himself and carried himself. And I said, hey, can we have dinner? And we had dinner together. And I, this is a pretty humble guy. He doesn't like to offer a lot. So you have to work at him. And I had to work at getting this out of him. Um, but I thought, hey, I, I'm buying dinner. So we got to make this happen. <laughs> and so 
I worked and worked and worked, and he, I just said, man, what does it take to be a, a, such a good dad? What advice would you give me? And he really came to the conclusion, I don't know. I, I don't know. But by the grace of God. But if I had to give you anything, I'd say this. Just be consistent. Day in and day out. Be consistent with Sarah. Be consistent with the kids. That hit me big time in that moment. So much so that I got this little white board. And uh, we used to have our offices in this house that was right outside the church building. And, but by the grace of God, it's not there anymore. And uh, <laughs> uh, I hung this white board right by the light switch in my office. And with a permanent marker, I wrote, just be consistent. And every day I walked out of my office to go home to turn the light off in my office. I saw that sign and it reminded me as I was getting in my car to transition to go home. They need you to be consistent. And I'm convinced our world needs more Christians to live consistent. More people to keep their word. More people to keep their cool and contain their emotions. More people to choose their words wisely and not share their opinions at every moment. More Christians to sign off than keep typing. To be consistent in our example in our life when the world is going crazy up and down, up and down and all over the place. The church, Christians, should be the steady thread through it all. Whether it's the impact of an elderly couple in Idaho praying for a young boy who had promise, or a first-century couple who decided to open their home no matter where they landed, or a family in South Florida who had a revolving front door. We need people to live consistent. Nothing big, nothing dramatic, nothing fancy, just the consistent, faithful living of Christians, having an impact on countless lives for generations to come. You want your life to have an impact? You want to leave a legacy of faithfulness when you're gone? Be consistent. Keep it simple. Keep it real. Let me ask you this. Two things for you to do this week. One is, whose picture, whose picture is on your refrigerator? Who is it that has impacted your life so tremendously that their picture would hang in a place where you can constantly think about it and remember. I, I just got to wonder how often Apollos had a trigger in his experiences that reminded him of Priscilla and Aquila. Some experience that they said, oh man, imagine where I'd be if it wasn't for them. Who is that for you? And would you take time this week to really think about that? Maybe even if they're still with us today, reach out and say thank you. And at the very least, thank the Lord for the impact they had on your life. Second thing is this, whose refrigerator is your picture on? Who is it that you've intentionally chosen to invest in and to love and to consistently care for? And this week, would you take time to sit back and think about them and maybe reach out to them? And at the very least, spend some time with the Lord and thank him for putting them in your path. This week, may we remember that the biggest impact is nothing big, it's nothing fancy, it's nothing dramatic, it's just consistent, simple, and real. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had in your word this morning. What an incredible gift and treat this study in Acts has been as it reminds us of how important relationships are to you and how important relationships are in molding and shaping us into who you need us to be. Father, you've gifted so many of us with relationships with one another and with other people who have come into our life, even if only for a season, to leave a tremendous impact on us. 
So God, we ask that this week you would bring those memories, flood them through our mind and our hearts so that we, with great gratitude, can remember and extend a prayer of thanks to you. God, we love you, and we thank you for all that you're doing in this place and around the world, and we give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.